Well, that's the paradox of the Christian life, that we must die before we can really live. And uh, we're going to look at another paradox as we continue in our study of the book of Romans, and that is we must become a slave to be truly free. Doesn't sound right, but it's true. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to be looking at the second half of this profound chapter, possibly one of the most chapters, one of the the most important chapters in the entire New Testament when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification and our relationship with sin. And so let's begin reading Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you, were, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you, were, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank you for giving us this very significant chapter. Lord, there's deep truth here that we ask that your spirit would give us understanding of Illuminate us that we might see what's here. We might grasp what's here. But most of all, that we might apply what's here. That we would live out what we learned this morning from this profound passage. Lord, we thank you that you freed us from sin. And we thank you now that you have made us slaves to you, who are truly free to live the life that you intended us to live. Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty in slavery. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the classic illustration of salvation in the Old Testament is the nation of Israel being delivered from slavery to Egypt. The father of Israel was Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons, 
And his youngest son, Joseph, was despised by his older brothers. And so they sold him to some traders traveling to Egypt. But what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God intended for good, as this was all part of God's sovereign plan to have one of his people strategically positioned in the land of Egypt in order to provide for the Jews during a future famine. And when that famine eventually hit the land of Canaan, Joseph was reunited and reconciled with his brothers. And his father Jacob and all his descendants moved from Canaan to Egypt. And the ruler who had entrusted the care of his entire kingdom to Joseph welcomed Joseph's family and allowed them to settle there. However, after Joseph died, a new king came to power who didn't know Joseph and saw the Jews, who by that time had multiplied greatly, as a threat to the safety of Egypt. And if you turn back to the book of Exodus, we see what Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, chose to do. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Well, as you know, the book of Exodus records how God miraculously rescued his people from the cruel oppression of Pharaoh through the ten plagues, the the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea. And after they had been set free from Egypt, God led them directly to Mount Sinai to give them the law in the form of ten commandments. And God wanted to make it clear to the Israelites that he didn't He hadn't delivered them from slavery to Egypt so that they could just do whatever they wanted to do and live however they wanted to live. They were to serve and obey him. In other words, they were no longer Pharaoh's slaves. Now they belonged to him. He had bought them with a price. They were his slaves now. In Exodus 19, God told Moses in verse 3, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. And so at Mount Sinai, God established himself as Israel's sovereign master or sovereign king, and the people of Israel were to be his loyal subjects or loyal slaves. And their obedience to him was to be based on and motivated by the fact that he had delivered them from slavery. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This was, by the way, the introduction to the Ten Commandments. 
In an ancient Near Eastern culture, it was customary for a king to make a covenant with his people. A king would present his subjects a treaty to sign that began with a preamble, which would lay out in simple terms, this is who I am, this is what I've done for you, now this is who you should be and what you should do. In other words, the king would defend his right to tell the people what to do. And in essence, that what was, that's what God was doing in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, is before giving them the Ten Commandments, he was defending his right to tell them how he wanted to live. He was reminding the Jews of his graciousness in redeeming them, which should have made them want to obey him and want to serve him out of love and gratitude. And then look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I was reading this this week, and this is where this whole concept of God delivering the nation of Israel from slavery to to Egypt came from, was Deuteronomy chapter 6. And again, here God was reiterating the law to this new generation before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? In other words, what's up with these Ten Commandments? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. And so God made them, the people of Israel, slaves for their own good. And in a helpful little booklet called Slavery Metaphors in Early Judaism and Pauline Christianity, here is a statement that I want to read. The Exodus formed the basis on which Israel understood itself as the slaves of God. Included in this understanding was the obligation to serve God in loyal obedience. And then listen to this. To call oneself an Israelite was the same as calling oneself a slave of God. Well, I say all that because in this passage in Romans 6, Paul borrowed the Old Testament imagery of slavery in order to illustrate how Christians have been freed from slavery to sin and are now slaves of God. Now, I don't know how you responded in your mind, in your heart, at the language that Paul used here as we read the text earlier. But to some of you, I'm sure it sounds shocking, maybe even disturbing to our modern ears. In fact, Paul, as we're going to see, actually apologized for using this analogy of slavery since at some point it eventually breaks down. It's not the perfect analogy. And yet he knew that the analogy of slavery would be immediately understandable to his Roman readers and would serve to make the profound concept of being freed from sin easier for them to grasp. 
The reason for that is because slavery, as you know, was widespread in Paul's day, particularly in Rome. It's estimated that in the first century, the population of Rome was about a third uh, slaves. And so it's likely that many of the members of the church in Rome that, that Paul was addressing here either were slaves or had been slaves at one time. And so they knew what it meant to be someone's slave. And Paul's point is simply this, that being freed from sin doesn't mean we're freed to sin or free to sin, but we're now free to live the way God originally intended us to live. That is, to joyfully and willfully or willingly serve and obey Christ as our master and our king. Now, I think it's helpful to remember that Paul was responding to questions here. That he anticipated the critics of salvation by grace through faith alone would naturally pose in light of what he wrote. We already saw one question at the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Which was a question in response to what he said in verse 20 of chapter 5, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So in other words, the more we sin, the more grace we receive, then why don't we just keep on sinning? And so we see this question asked again, just in a little different way, in verse 15, what then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Which was, by the way, a response to verse 14, what Paul said in verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Really? So we're no longer under the law, we're under grace? Well, well then, because we're no longer the law, should we sin? Go on sinning? question in verse 1 was, shall we continually live in sin? Shall we go on sinning? Based on the Greek tense here in verse 15 that Paul used, I think the question here is more, shall we casually sin from time to time? In other words, is sin really that big of a deal? If we're really under grace and, and free from the penalty of sin, what difference does a little sin make? I don't know if you've ever said this or maybe thought this, but I've heard people say this, I know that what I'm thinking of doing is sin, but I'm a child of God, and I know He'll forgive me because I'm under grace. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that? Well, listen to what F.F. Bruce said. In his commentary on Romans, he said, to make being under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace at all. In other words, if that's your play when it comes to dealing with temptation, well, it's really not that big of a deal. I'll just ask, I'll just do it and then ask for forgiveness and I know God will forgive me. Well, that may be an indication, that may be a sign, that may be evidence that you're not really under grace at all. Paul answered this latest question the same way he did the previous unthinkable blasphemous questions with the horrified, may it never be. Are you out of your mind? Why would you even think that? 
Just because we're no longer under the law doesn't mean we're lawless. Grace is not a license to sin. On the contrary, it provides us the liberty to not sin. And so it's absurd to suggest, to suggest that we are freed from sin so we can continue living in bondage to sin. It makes no sense. Like the nation of Israel, we were rescued from slavery to sin so we could serve and obey our new master, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a slave of Christ. Salvation transforms us from being a slave to sin into being a slave of Christ. It transfers us from one slavery to another. And then the Christian life is really all about learning to submit our lives more and more to our new master, becoming more and more like our new master, submitting more and more to the lordship of Christ. The Bible refers to that process as sanctification. And that is what Paul was focused on here in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, a couple weeks ago, I tried to get you to picture a diagram of God's overall work of salvation, including justification, sanctification, and glorification. And I should have known that was a bad idea with a bunch of engineers in here because I had one come up to me afterwards and he had had it drawn out and he was like, hey, can you help me fill this in? He was trying to see it and draw it out. And so I thought, I owe it to at least one of you uh, to show you this. And so I was able to put this together with the help of Chris. And uh, there you go. It's just so I know I can, we can do this, right? Okay. Here's, here's the diagram that I was trying to um, get you to envision with me. This is God's overall work of salvation. And there's a past element there's a present element, and there's a future element. The past element is justification, which happens at our conversion. When we repent and believe, we are instantly declared righteous before God. That is our spiritual standing. That cannot change. We are righteous in God's eyes. Now, once we're justified, we move into this stage called sanctification, which is our actual standing. It's, it's who we are right now, practically. And thankfully, that can change and is changing. And that change happens gradually. And then ultimately, the goal is glorification. And that's ultimately what will happen to us when we see Jesus, whether at our death or at the rapture. And so again, you see the, the, the going from we're dealing with ultimately man's unrighteousness and God's righteousness. How, do, how does an unrighteous man become perfect like God? And so this is a, a big picture. Hopefully that kind of helps you kind of put these kind of three very important concepts of justification, sanctification, glorification in kind of the proper place in your mind. But the point is this, anyone who has been truly justified by God's grace will also be progressively sanctified and will eventually be glorified. In other words, you, you can't be justified and not be sanctified. And you can't be sanctified and not be glorified. It's a package deal. And that's what 
Paul was getting at in this chapter. And in the first half of the chapter, he explained that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And now in this half of the chapter that we're going to look at this morning, he explained how we are now enslaved to God. And so what he's doing here in in these verses is he's comparing and contrasting these two slaveries that all of us must choose from in, in life. These two slaveries are diametrically opposed to one another. They couldn't be more different. They have two totally different masters who demand two totally different types of service, which produce two totally different results, which lead to two totally different outcomes in life. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God. And if you're a slave of sin, sin demands that you do shameful things and it produces unrighteousness and it results in eternal death or hell. If you're a slave of God, God demands that we do righteous things and it produces sanctification or holiness which ultimately results in eternal life or heaven. And every one of us needs to decide whose slave we're going to be. We can either be a slave of sin or a slave of sin of God. And despite what some of you may think, no one is their own master. Because there are some who are like, well, I'm not a slave of sin and I'm not a slave of God. I'm my own master. Well, the idea that you are no one's slave, that, that you are free to be and do whatever you want is just not true. The Bible says that you and I, we were all born as slaves to sin. None of us picked our first master. It was chosen for us by Adam when he chose to rebel against God in the garden. And because Adam served as our representative, his sin was transferred to all of us along with all of sin's consequences. We learned about that in Romans chapter 5. The good news is we don't have to stay a slave to sin, nor do we have to experience the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. Why? Because God graciously extended the offer for us to choose to turn from our life of sin and surrender our lives to follow and obey Jesus Christ as our new master and Lord. And those who make that choice to surrender their life to Christ are freed from sin's penalty, are free from sin's power, and will one day be freed from sin's presence. And so all that to say, everyone who has ever lived or ever will live serves one of two masters. You either serve sin or you serve God. And by the way, it's impossible to serve both at the same time. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, Jesus said. You'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And so the question is, how do you know who your real master is? Well, let's look a little closer at each of these two slaveries. And rather than going kind of sequentially, verse by verse, through this passage, I want to look at it topically. And I want to take all the verses that talk about what it means to be a slave of sin and look at those together. And then I want to take all the verses that talk about being a slave of God and put those together and talk about that. And so let's first of all talk about what it means to be a slave of sin. And, and we see, first of all, the proof the proof that you're a slave of sin, and that is you obey sin. 
Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So here's a simple, undeniable fact that when you submit yourself to someone or something as your master, you become its slave. Second Peter 2.19, the false teachers promise freedom while they themselves were slaves of corruption. And Peter said, for by what a man is overcome, by this, this he is enslaved. And so if you are living in sin, if you are living in a pattern of unbridled sin or unbroken sin or unrepentant sin, that proves that you are a slave of sin. Again, it's the pattern of your life that you're looking at, that you're examining. Now, what about the product? What does being a slave of sin produce? Well, it produces increasing unrighteousness. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness... His point is that before we were saved, we offered or surrendered our bodies without restraint to one kind of wickedness after another, which led to us sinning more frequently and more badly. In other words, there was this moral deterioration that was happening in our lives, and, and we, were, we ended up doing things that we never thought were even possible. Look at verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, we couldn't do right even if we wanted to, even if we tried to. We were completely incapable of living a righteous life that's pleasing to God. Notice what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so despite how decent you may have been, how honest or kind or law-abiding or benevolent or generous or religious you may have been, you were still a slave of sin. You weren't in some neutral state. You weren't free to choose good or evil. I think I'll do good today and I'll do evil tomorrow. No, our will was bound to our sinful nature and the only thing we could do was sin. And then look at verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? So Paul challenged his readers here to consider what we actually gained from the sins that we thought were going to bring us so much pleasure and satisfaction. I mean, granted, they may have been enjoyable at first, but they eventually left us feeling guilty and ashamed. They destroyed relationships. They caused us to experience all sorts of misery and pain. They, they wasted precious time and money. We abused and, and misused our faculties and our abilities and our gifts. Our, our affections were distorted and perverted.
not long ago, I was tempted to sin, and I was thinking about my options. And the first thing I thought or came to mind was the, the definition of insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. How many times have I done this before and I'm expecting it's going to be different this time? No, that's insane. I know how this turns out. I know how this ends. I know what I'm going to feel like in a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. And then I remember asking myself this question and it was based on this verse. How has this ever benefited my life? How has doing this ever done anything good for me? I mean, it's always led to shame and guilt and remorse. It messes up my relationship with God. It it messes up my relationship with other people. It it robs me of the joy of my salvation. It hinders my usefulness to God. I'm like, I would be stupid to do this because I gain nothing from this. In fact, I lose everything that I hold dear. And by the grace of God, I resisted that temptation. But I was so grateful for this verse where Paul really challenges us to, hey, be honest about how you're actually benefiting from the sin that you're committing. Has anything good ever come from it? And so we see the proof and the product, what it produces, but look at the promise. What is the the promised outcome here? Verse 16, notice he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death? He also says the same, same thing in verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. By the way, Paul's made it very clear in this letter that sin and death go hand in hand. In Romans 1, verse 32, although they knew the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Chapter 8, verse 6, For the mind set in the flesh is death. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. In other words, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, 8, if you sow sow to the flesh, you reap death, right? If you sow to the spirit, you reap life. We know that from the very beginning, God warned that the consequence of sin is death or separation from him. Genesis 2, 17, he said, listen, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely what? Die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, the soul that sins must die. And then Paul says it here very clearly in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. 
That word wage there was used to describe the pay that a soldier would earn for his service. So if you work for someone, you expect to get paid for your time and and effort. And so what we deserve for our service to sin is to be separated from God forever in the flames of hell where we suffer endless agonizing torment. So eternal damnation lies waiting at the end of the road for those who live as slaves of sin. Stuart Oliata, a British commentator that I very much enjoy, said this about what Paul was saying. He said, Paul has made it absolutely clear why a professing Christian cannot live lawlessly. It would prove, despite his claims to the contrary, that he is not a Christian at all, but that sin is still his master. It would prove that he is a person who is eternally lost. And then he said this, this is a very, this is very solemn and searching teaching. The proof that you are a true believer does not lie in your words, but in the life that you live. The New Testament teaches that whoever God justifies, he also sanctifies. All professing Christians who have unchanged lives are not Christians at all. And so I agree, this is very solemn, searching teaching. But this is what it means to be a slave of sin. Now let's, now let's look at what it means to be a slave of God. What is the proof that you're a slave of God? Well, simply you obey God. Again, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of, one, of the one whom you obey? So obedience is the very essence of slavery. What does it mean to be a slave? It means you obey someone. You obey your master. That's what it means to be a slave. And so the essence of what it means to be a Christian is you obey your master. You obey Jesus. John 3.36, he who has the Son or he who believes in the Son shall have life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so there's... Two words there, believe and obey, used synonymously. And so obedience is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Paul describing the people he was writing to, the saints that were scattered all over Asia. He said, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. So Paul described their salvation. That you were chosen by the foreknowledge of God, not to accept Jesus into your heart, but to obey Jesus. How about this? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul is talking about those who will end up being separated from God in hell. When Christ returns, he'll deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So again, I think this obedience 
to Christ is the missing element of the gospel today. And the book of Romans is all about the gospel. And if you remember, Paul launched into the discussion of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 5, saying, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. He used that same expression in chapter 16, in the last chapter, verse 26, but now he said, is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has made known to all nations leading to obedience of faith. He was describing the gospel. Paul assumed that when someone received the gospel, the pattern of their life would change from disobedience to obedience. And the simple statement, obedience of faith, I think serves as clear evidence that being a Christian is not just believing some facts about Jesus or having some emotional experience about about Jesus, but it's living a life of obedience to Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. True saving faith involves more than just accepting Jesus as your Savior. We need to surrender our lives to Christ as our Lord and commit to follow and obey Him for the rest of our lives. And this is what we've been learning in the gospel here, or the the book of Romans, that the gospel demands more than just intellectual acceptance or some sentimental response to Jesus. It demands a wholehearted commitment to obey and serve Christ as our master. Notice what Paul says here in verse 17 of chapter 6, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So Paul gushed with thanksgiving to God for saving the Roman believers and the proof or evidence that they were truly saved was that they had fully embraced the basic tenets and demands of the gospel, which by that time were clearly defined and and systematized as a body of truth that was passed down from Christ and the apostles. And so they obeyed it. They didn't just accept it Oh yeah, we agree with that. They actually applied it. They actually did it. And so the mark of a true Christian is, is, is total heartfelt obedience to Christ and his word. You became obedient from the heart. This, is, this wasn't just some head knowledge. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I know about Jesus and he came and he died and he rose again and No, this is a commitment to those facts. This is far more than historical. It's it's transformational. Look at verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, being a Christian means you go from being a slave of sin to being a slave of not sinning. Or a slave of righteousness. Again, it doesn't mean that we're no longer capable of, of, of sinning. We are. But we're no longer obligated to sin. Now we're obligated to obey God. So again, Paul's describing an exchange of one slavery for another. That's what happens when you get saved. 
You go from being a slave of sin to being a slave of God. You exchange one slavery for another. Now, for those of you that might, that might be rubbing you a little wrong, notice again what Paul says in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So he made an analogy apology here, as one man put it. He knew slavery was a familiar illustration from everyday life, which would make a difficult truth more understandable. It'd take an abstract thought and make it concrete. That's what was his goal here. But at the same time, he knew that slavery was not an altogether accurate or appropriate metaphor of the Christian life because it, the analogy eventually breaks down in that slavery is humiliating, it's, it's degrading, it's an onerous thing into which you're forced into by a cruel tyrant. But that's not true of us as Christians. We aren't forced into slavery. We are graciously released from sin to freely serve Christ Rather than being an onerous thing, it's a joyous honor and privilege to serve such a kind and gracious master. Jesus' invitation was what? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. My yoke is not hard. My yoke is easy compared to the slavery, the, the burden that the Pharisees had put on you to, to try to earn your own righteousness by your own good works. I remember hearing a story years ago from the British-American slave trade that there was a, a slave girl that was brought up on the slave auction and she was being auctioned off and um, she was a beautiful young lady and uh, there was all these men there uh, who were bidding on her and it was clear that they had um, wrong intent um, in, in motives for wanting to, to buy her. And, uh, and there was one man in the crowd who, whose heart went out to this young lady because he, he knew what these other men would do if they bought her. And so he began to bid on her. And the bid went higher and higher and higher and higher. And finally, um, he was the last one. He had the highest bid. And so they took this girl off the stage and brought her down to him and the first thing he did was ask for the key and he unlocked her chains, threw her chains aside and said, you're free to go. And immediately that young girl fell at his feet and with tears said, I want to serve you for the rest of my life. That's the kind of slavery that we are a part of when it comes to Christ. That we are falling at the feet of a kind and gracious master who took the chains of our slavery to sin away and freed us to live for him. And that's why he says in the same verse, verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. This is a reverence, reference to what he said back in verse 13. 
Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, rather than letting our eyes and our ears and our mouths and our hands and our feet serve sin, do sinful things, we should offer up or yield the members of our body to serve and glorify the Lord as those who have been bought with a price. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, Verse 19, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to Christ. And so we should be as sold out to serving and pleasing Christ as we are, or as we were, to sinning and pleasing ourselves as unbelievers. Is that true of you? Are you as sold out to serving and pleasing Christ as you were to sinning and pleasing yourself before you were saved? That's evidence that you are a slave of God. What is the product? What does being a slave of God produce? Well, it produces increasing righteousness. Again, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? That the natural result of obeying God is a holy and righteous life. Verse 19 He says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Again, that's the the, the present, ongoing process by which the Holy Spirit of God gradually grows and matures us and helps us sin less and less and become more and more like Christ. It's, It's a spiritual transformation rather than a moral deterioration. Verse 22 Now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. Now you're talking. Now now there's some real benefit here. There was no benefit being a slave of sin, but there is a benefit being a slave of God. And that's that's the benefit we be we have of becoming a willing slave of God is that we're finally able to live a holy and righteous life that pleases Him. We're finally able to do it. 1 Peter 2.16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You may want to underline that phrase there in verse 22, enslaved to God. I think I've told you that there are some friends of mine that have actually taken this literally, if you will, and uh, had this expression tattooed on their body. I'm not advocating that you do that. Some of you parents with teenagers are like, I can't believe the pastor just gave my kids permission to get a tattoo. I did not give your kids permission to get a tattoo. (laughs) I'm just saying I know a guy who, who has Christos Doulos tattooed on his wrist. So when he's typing on his computer, he's driving his car, he's staring at the fact that he's Christ's slave. That he doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to Christ and he's here to serve Christ. Another commentator said this, God's purpose in redeeming men from sin is not to give them freedom to do as they please, but freedom to do as he pleases, which is to live righteously. And then he references 
The Old Testament example of Israel. When God commanded Pharaoh to let his people go, he also made clear his purpose for their deliverance, that they may serve me in the wilderness. He didn't just say, okay, you guys are free to go, just have fun wandering around the wilderness. No, I'm bringing you out here so you can serve me. And then he said this, God delivers men from enslavement to sin for the sole purpose of their becoming enslaved to him and to his righteousness. What is the promise? Verse 22, what is the outcome? But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Heaven lies at the end of the road for those who live holy and righteous lives. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the contrast here. The slave of sin earns damnation. They deserve to go to hell. On the other hand, the slave of God is granted eternal life as a gift. You can't earn your way to heaven. It's an undeserved gift that God gives to those who place their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, for their salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so in the end, the slave of sin gets what they deserve, and the slave of God gets what they don't deserve. Again, reading from a commentary, I was struck by this. Quote, sin is the terrible, life-wrecking, soul-damning reality that resides and grows in every unredeemed human heart like an incurable cancer. Even when men try to escape from sin, they cannot, and even when they try to escape its guilt, they cannot. The greatest gift God could give to fallen mankind is freedom from sin, and it is that very gift that he offers through his Son, Jesus Christ. So the question I ask you today is whose slave are you? Are you sin's slave or are you God's slave? See, who your master is makes all the difference in the world when it comes to how your life goes now and where you will spend eternity. For those of you that are desirous of going deeper into this concept of being a slave of God, a slave of Christ, I would highly recommend this book by John MacArthur called Slave. And it's a book he wrote about eight years ago, and it was really based on a book that he read, another smaller book that he read on an, on an airplane one night. Um, 
traveling to England, and it was a book by a seminary professor uh, named Murray Harris titled Slave of Christ. And um, the main point of both of these books, th- this book and, and, and Slave of Christ, is that to be a Christian is to be a slave of Christ. And to be a slave of Christ is true freedom. To obey and to serve and to please God and to live the way he created us to live and to experience all the blessings and benefits that he intended for us. And I want to close with a quote from Murray Harris from his book, Slave of Christ, as he focuses on the paradox of slavery and freedom. He said, quote, one of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to slavery and slavery leads to freedom. Remember what I said at the beginning? That in order to be free, you have to become a slave. You have to become a slave to become free. It's a paradox. He said, as soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new permanent slavery to Christ. Indeed, the one slavery is terminated precisely in order to allow the other slavery to begin. While that emancipation happens individually, the persons who are freed are not simply isolated slaves of Christ. They form a worldwide community of fellow slaves, all belonging to the one master who purchased their freedom and all committed to obeying and pleasing him. What a joy. What a joy. And honor, what a privilege it is to be fellow bond slaves of Christ. Amen? You're not in this alone. You're in it with all of us. What a joy, what a blessing. Father, thank you for this radical concept of slavery that may at first be hard to swallow But Lord, it's in your word and we can't argue with your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to appreciate the paradox of having to become a slave in order to become truly free. Thank you, Lord, for delivering us from slavery to sin so that we could be your slave and and serve you. And Lord, there's many people that we will come in contact with this week who are still living as slaves of sin and they're on their way to hell. And Lord, would you give us, Lord, a burden to tell them how they can be freed from their sin and know true freedom in Christ. And so, Lord, use us, Lord, as your slaves, Lord, that we would serve you well this week, particularly in sharing the gospel with, one, with others. Lord, we know that's one of the primary duties of a slave of Christ is to share the good news of salvation. So may we do that well this week for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.